it's not even. Alright, guys, uh, we're going to get started with the second session today, which is on hiring. And we're all really excited because we have my, our, our good friend Hussein Kanji is here to give a talk. I'll allow him to introduce himself. Uh, but afterwards, we'll all be breaking for lunch, so definitely give him your undivided attention because I think you'll find this to be one of the most useful sessions of the day. So. Cool. Hi, everybody. Um, I guess I'm standing between you guys and lunch. Uh, never a good spot. Uh, uh, Hussein Kanji, I'll give you a little bit of background about myself. Uh, I run a very small venture capital fund here in London uh, called Hoxton Ventures, uh, hoxtonventures.com. Um, before that, I was at Axel, which is a much bigger venture capital fund, also here in London, where I did a, a few investments, a couple of which did really well, uh, probably most notably Playfish, uh, which got sold to Electronic Arts. Uh, and before that, I used to run a small business unit at Microsoft in the speech recognition space, and then I rotated around the company, uh, wrote the business plan for virtualization, Hyper-V, and before that, I probably had a real job, because uh, none of those really count, and I was an engineer, and I did a few startups uh, from scratch, so I did my first one when I was really young at 17, we sold that uh, when I was 19, it was an early web design agency. Um, did a second company that was a content delivery networking company, did a third company that was a deep packet inspection switch company, and then did a fourth company, which is the machine that you see at the airports that spins around you and builds a composite image of your body uh, and violates your privacy. So that's... Uh, that's I'm just going to fix this problem uh, for you right Okay. Um, so, um, so this talk is really about hiring tech talent. It's, it's not about trying to find a co-founder. It's really about what you should be looking for when you're doing interviews. And it's really kind of my engineering interview 101 for the startups that we invest in because what you normally find is that most most folks in Europe have never gone through a formal engineering uh, interview process, uh, especially on the startup side because there are not that many big tech companies here that probably do it well. So this is kind of a, a, a case uh, of what to do. Um, just very quickly about the fund itself. Uh, so we invest, uh, we invest in two things. We, we do early stage, early stage technology investments. If any of you guys are building a startup or know people who are building startups uh, that are trying to build big, global, scalable services uh, on, using something on the internet, those are the kinds of things that we, we're interested in. We try and shoot for companies that we think can turn out to be billion dollar companies. Uh, and then we're very focused on trying to be a bridge back to Silicon Valley because we do think that the tech center uh, of, of the world is out in California, uh, just the same way the financial center is here in London and in New York. Uh, so those are kind of the two things that we look for. Um, so I guess the first thing is why does a... So when, when, you, when you tend to build and recruit tech teams, right, why do you try and do this process? And the whole process I'm going to try and outline for you is a very similar process to what Microsoft does. It's, uh, it's almost identical to what Google does. It's also what Facebook is now built in for, uh, to its interview process. Uh, and it's, it's what Amazon, et cetera. So why do people actually focus on this? And the biggest reason is that there are huge differences in programming talent. So I don't know how many, how many of you guys are engineers in the room? So, so this is like, so for, for a lot of you guys, this is like, I guess, background for how to recruit and build technology teams. Uh, huge differences in, in productivity between engineers. And the, the general rule of thumb in our industry is that there's like a 10x difference in, in, in programmers between kind of the mediocre average programmer to the exceptional programmer. And so it's a 10x difference in productivity, uh, kind of design, architecture, et cetera. Um, 
And so I found some stats, and there have been a couple of papers on this stuff, because uh, you know some people do call bullshit on these stats. And so people have looked back retroactively to figure this out. Uh, and one of the stats is you know, a, a team in the 15th percentile of programmers is about three and a half times uh, less productive than a team in the 90th percentile. So not quite a 10x, but that was a study that found it. And, and probably the, the, a really good example is you know, Microsoft, at Microsoft, you know, it took us 50, 50 years, man years, uh, uh, to produce lines of code. The same exact product, uh, the equivalent product to Excel back in the day, was Lotus 1, 2, 3, uh, took 260 years. So huge difference. And, and part of the reason is, is, is Microsoft just runs really good engineering interviews and has a really good team of people uh, behind the company. And even though their products, I think, are shit. Uh, uh, um, so, Can I just interrupt briefly yeah. Are we going to have access to these slides afterwards? Yeah, there's a, there's the slides are available, and there's also a interview guide that we write for our companies, which is like 30 pages, and Matt refused to print it out for me. Uh, I wanted everybody to have it, because I thought it would be good. But Matt, those will be emailed out. Uh, so you don't need to take notes on this stuff for copy links or anything. Um, now, the biggest hiring principle from a tech perspective is the whole point of interviewing is to is to is to not find people who are not qualified. So you are always in a better position to pass on someone who's qualified as long as your interview process or the, the process that you're setting up doesn't find people, screens out old people who are not suitable. And, and this, is like an this is like an engineering hiring principle 101. It works really well for companies. So this is not a perfect system. There are lots and lots of people probably out there who probably would be exceptionally good engineers for you to hire who may not who might come through the system and, 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 and flunk it. Uh, but what you're trying to do is you're trying to minimize the people who otherwise would not be productive in the company. So it's just, it, and it, that tends to work reasonably well. And you'll find, if you go online and look at, you know, people who've like done Google interviews or Facebook interviews, um, you know, and they think they're perfectly capable software engineers, um, you know, they will often kind of moan about, about the fact that these systems are, are designed for these false negatives. Um, the other thing is, from your perspective, if you guys are building and, and hiring an engineering team, you know the most important for you guys, the most important thing for you guys to have, if you don't have a technical co-founder, is to have a technical co-founder review a lot of this stuff, uh, because a lot of this stuff is going to be hard. This is going to be an impossible interview to do as a business person. It's useful to understand it. Uh, but it's, it's virtually impossible for you to be able to do these kinds of interviews and screen candidates. So what you typically tend to find is a lot of business folks will ask questions like, what was the last language that you programmed in? You know, are you really good at iOS development? You know, can you show me some examples of products and you know, services that you've built? And kind of make their engineering decisions on that. You know, generally speaking, that's a really bad way to hire. Uh, and, and this is consistent. And we've noticed in Europe, even among really good startups, it's the typical interview process is, Tell me a little bit about yourself. Tell me what languages you, you can write in. Tell me what you're, you're actually capable of. They do a lot of stuff on experience, and then they'll look at actually products, but they won't do a lot in terms of actually figuring out and evaluating if the person's super high quality or just mediocre quality. And so you find a lot of teams here in Europe are mediocre. And one of the reasons why this is hugely important as a startup is if you're going to be acquired down the line and someone like a Google or Facebook makes an acquisition offer, one of the very first things that they do in their, in their, in their acquisition process is actually put all your engineers through this interview process. And if you flunk this, the acquisition gets pulled. And this has happened numerous times out, out here in, in, in Europe. So again, it's useful to be aware of this stuff. Um, so. The funnel is pretty simple, right? So there's a problem on terms of, there are several problems, right? The first is kind of sourcing, like how do you find really good people? Uh, 
Then there's phone screening, uh, and then there's doing actual on-site interviews, uh, kind of you know what, what we call the interview loop, and then there's figuring out if the person actually kind of fits what you're looking for. Uh, so fairly simple process. And by the way, you know, poke me if you guys have questions, because uh, happy to happy to stop and pause on any of this stuff. So sourcing 101. What tends to work really well for most technology companies is the first, which is just get folks when they're really young. And I have yet to figure out anybody here in Europe that's figured out how to crack the college system. You know, the banks have done it, you know, Barclays, et cetera, Goldman, et cetera, will go to Imperial, et cetera. But I haven't seen any startups or tech companies figure out how to actually get a funnel going to find, like, fresh computer science grads and be able to recruit them in. So nobody's really solved it. So it's a, it's a good problem to go off and solve because I think if you solve it, uh, you'll, get, you'll get increasing returns on that stuff. The company that really pioneered how to crack this, and it's worth Googling uh, if, you, if you haven't heard about it before, is a company in Austin called Trilogy. You have never heard about it because uh, it's 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 not it's not an interesting company anymore. But it was started off by this Stanford dropout uh, called Joe Lamont, uh, and it got to about 300 million in revenue. And, and one thing Trilogy figured out really well in the U.S. and almost all their hires came from from U.S. universities directly out of college. Um, what they figured out is there's an order of magnitude difference between the guys who are in the top 10 percent of their class and the guys who are in the remaining 90 percent. And finding the top 10% on every different college campus is a different thing. So at Stanford, there's the top 10% turn out to be particular kinds of TAs for this one class. And you know, at MIT, it's a different system. And at you know, University of Texas, it's a different system. And so if you map out all the colleges and figure out where the top 10% of people are clustered, and then you do stuff like send them pizza, you know, have really attractive people go in and try and recruit them, you know, all kinds of little things, you turn out to actually massively increase your conversion rate. And there's a whole alumni list of folks from Trilogy. If you were a software engineer, you're sorry, a college graduate between 1992 and 1998, kind of pre-dot-com bubble, and you were in the top 10%, there's a very good chance you would have either spent an internship or ended up working at Trilogy at some point in your time. So like the former CEO of Mozilla is a Trilogy alum. There are a whole bunch of Apple people who are Trilogy alums. There are a whole bunch of Microsoft people. There are a whole bunch of Google people who are Trilogy alums. And there's actually a Trilogy alumni database that's actually fantastic because pretty much everybody in that generation is really good, spent some amount of time in Trilogy. But they figured it out. And a lot of this stuff is available online now. So if you go to Google and you and search for Trilogy recruiting and go through Quora, you'll find a lot of the techniques that they use to actually source stuff. The challenge here in Europe is that there are very few, apart from, apart from the UK, there are very few universities that churn out enough graduates of enough high caliber where you could actually run a program like this and actually be able to, to source effectively. So you know, it works at Cambridge, it works at Imperial, uh, you know, and then it starts thinning out. There's just not enough numbers of people to really go after. So that's, that's kind of the first one. Uh, the next best thing, uh, or probably even a better thing, is to poke someone else's staff. So you already kind of know that Google, Amazon, Facebook, et cetera, know how to recruit properly. And if you can just figure out how to crack their system and be able to hire people from them, it's much easier for you to actually build a, build a real team. The challenge here in London is that none of these guys run product or engineering of any scale here anywhere in, in the UK or Europe. So you know Google does do ad sales development here, but Amazon doesn't do development here. Facebook is opening up an office here but doesn't do anything and so it's really hard to be able to rely on the big tech companies to be able to find talent because we just don't have enough in our backyard and you find a lot of guys who are sales guys or you know maybe like 
product managers, but even the really good product managers for Google are, are, are in Mountain View. And the way Google's internal system works is if you're talented, they ship you out to Mountain View. You don't end up staying here in Europe. So uh, it's just a very Mountain View-centric culture. Uh, so hard, you know, hard to do this here, here in Europe, but easy to do in Silicon Valley. And then the third is word of mouth. Uh, and then there are a few portals that are good for, for tossing up resumes. So Stack Overflow is one, uh, and there's a link to it here. Uh, but it's much harder to do this stuff uh, than, than trying to actually build like a campus recruiting program or a word of mouth program. So I guess let's go on to the next thing. So the phone screen. So you know, so once you find someone who's reasonably interested, the real process begins at that point, right? So it's you want to try and minimize the amount of time that you're spending on candidates to screen out the false negatives. And the first thing that you do is a phone screen. So you, you know, pick up the phone or you go to you go to Skype, etc., and you set up a thirty minute a thirty minute call with them and just do a, a, a test. And we're going to dive into what the things are that you should be looking for on this stuff. Um, and two kind of caveats is the first is don't let the candidate spend a lot of time talking because what you it's very easy to do one of these phone screens and say you know why don't you tell me a little bit about your background and a little bit about background takes up 20 minutes and you found that you've had very little chance to actually ask any pointed questions in the phone screen you want to get the maximum use of that phone screen time uh, and the second thing is anybody who uh, who only has one particular kind of engineering experience and you ask them, you know, what if what do you program in? And they say, you know, we do iOS stuff and they say, do anything else? And they say no. Just eliminate off the bat. It's a good rule of thumb because they're probably not going to be great engineering talent. They're too focused on a, on a specialty to, to actually be useful. Um, so what do you look for in this phone screen? So, you know, the first the first is, and this is only 30 minutes, right? So this is very high level stuff. You actually can't get a lot of stuff uh, out of the phone screen. So the first thing is, you know, make your phone, design your phone screen in such a way that this is universal stuff. This is stuff that everybody should know. If they're first, they're second year, you know, computer science uh, student, they'd probably be able to solve most of your problems. If they're 30 years in the industry, they should be able to solve the, the problems. Uh, the second is design, and I'm going to give you a bunch of examples, so questions and areas that you should be focused on, so, so we can go into that. Second one is do this as quickly as possible, so you want to design questions that are, that are designed to be weed out questions, which give you a whole bunch of information on a very short basis, and I'll give you examples of what these things look like, which tell you a lot more about the candidate than, than you would actually be able to, without spending a ton of time. Now, the third is because, again, remember, we're optimizing for false negatives. This is all about correlation. So there are certain kinds of things, and they're not perfect. Uh, and, you know, there are lots of people who will you know, not do very well on these phone interviews who might be exceptionally good employees, but there's a really high correlation that a lot of the stuff that you're testing for will weed out the, the, the bottom half, and that's what you're trying to do. Um, and then the, the, the last thing is you, know, you want to screen for someone who just doesn't, doesn't know, right? So you want to save yourself the time of spending a day you know, in person. Because recruiting, by the way, like you know, I tell a lot of our CEOs this, like, you know, recruiting will take like 20 to 30% of your time if you're a scaling startup. I mean, you will literally spend a day a week you know, doing interviews across your teams. It's a huge distraction, especially if you're building a company that's starting to scale and needs to hire. So you want to use this 30 minutes to, to weed out anything that's not useful because you don't want to spend a couple of hours with someone only to find out the same stuff that you could have found out on a, on a phone interview. Excuse yeah. Me. Do you have a rough ratio of how many candidates to positions? It depends on the geography. Uh, so, you know, it, I'll give you an example. So in India, a phone, if your phone screen is any, if you're not screening out a thousand candidates for every one, you're probably doing something wrong. It seems excessively high, but that's because the quality of talent in India is really poor. Uh, just as a, as a benchmark, 
you know, when Google does their internal, sorry, when Microsoft did their internal study, uh, and they tried to figure out pockets of engineers that were recruitable. So India turns out like a million and a half engineers, but recruitable engineers in India total for the entire country is a thousand. Uh, so that tells you that in Europe, do you it's have, sorry, do you have that data for no, most countries? Yeah, I do, but it's proprietary in, 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 in my somewhere in Microsoft HR. I was I was having I was having breakfast earlier this week with the head of Google in in Paris. And he was he he knows a lot of this stuff off the top of his head and was giving me the numbers because uh, they've done the, you know Google's doing the same stuff that Microsoft is. Uh, just, in, I don't know what the number in which Europe. Which countries are the best? The U.S. <laughs> no, no, not period. I mean, they're, just in terms of density, just because of the engineering colleges, right? And I would imagine the U.K. is probably not that far behind in Europe. And in, in Europe. There, there are like about five or six universities that are really good where you can hire this kind of stuff for qualified. So ETH in Switzerland is one, the, the Lausanne University in Switzerland is another one. That's the reason why Google's development center in Europe sits in Zurich. Uh, it's specifically designed to target ETH. Uh, there's like a couple, there's like one in Holland, but I forget the name. Uh, there's KTH in Sweden, there's Lund in Sweden, uh, there's like one more in Sweden uh, that I'm blanking on. Um, I'm sure if you Google, you can find out where the good engineering colleges are. Um, but you know, back to your question, how many are, how many phone interviews going to do? Like in the valley, you'd probably do between like thirty to hundred phone interviews per per person that you're bringing in. If you get the funnel working much better, then it might be like ten interviews per person. But like you know, even at the volume that probably Facebook sees, um, you know, I would I would probably wager that they're screening out a bunch of stuff just on resumes. And then they're doing phone interviews probably every 20th to, no, to 30th person. And then they're probably bringing that person in for interviews. And they're probably hiring one out of the 10 people who comes in from the interview process. That sounds about, about right. Uh, so like I said, this is like quick screen, right? You're trying to, you're trying to eliminate. Uh, that, that's the whole point. Um, so any other questions? Okay, so what are, what are the stuff that you're looking for? So I think the best way of doing phone screen is the following five things. I think this is a fairly good template uh, for, 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 for doing a, a test on someone. So the first is a coding test, uh, and we'll talk about what that means. And just to find out if the person can actually code in real time. Uh, and again, almost impossible to do as a business person because it's very hard for you to know this stuff. So you have to have like a technology co-founder on this stuff, but they, have, they should be doing something like this. The next one is kind of doing an object-oriented design test. I'll explain why in a second. Uh, the next one is kind of a scripting and regular expressions test. The next one is kind of the, the meat of, a, of, of an engineering interview in person, which is a data structures test. So here you can just do a very light one. And then the last one is kind of a bits and bytes questions that people actually understand how computers actually work underneath the hood. Uh, you should be able to do all of these within half an hour. So you can probably ask questions that take no more than five minutes to solve. Uh, and we'll, we'll get, I'll give you examples in a second. So I was going to say, so when you say write some simple code, if you're on a phone, yep. how, so there are lots of ways of doing this, and so that's the okay. next question. So coding phone screen, right? So a couple of different ways of doing this. One is you can give the coding thing and say, let me call you back in 15 minutes. So let them write it out. It obviously, it allows them to cheat. Uh, but, you know, if they're cheating on an interview, this is a phone screen, right? So like, you'd be amazed at how many people won't cheat and will fail. So like, I almost want someone who will cheat and fail. <laughs> and I can weed them out down the line in, in an actual proper interview, right? So it's probably, you can probably take the risk on being able to give a coding question, especially if you put time pressure on it. Uh, that's kind of like the way you would do it in like the early 90s, early mid-90s. Today, we all have browsers. There's some software packages that you can actually ask an interview question. You can look at a document in real time at the same time. So you know, Codility has a bunch of sample problems. And then you can just open up a Google Doc and, and have people write okay. in the Google Doc. Uh, 
Facebook built their own internal system that, to, to do this. There's like a new <laughs> <laughs> I, was trying, I was trying to keep it quiet. <laughs> now I know there's a whiteboard. Uh, Sorry, guys. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so, so, screen share. The screen, yeah, the screen share stuff is good. Yeah, so the screen, the screen share stuff is good. Um, the other stuff is just give it to them offline. Uh, and, and some folks like Facebook have built their own little HTML widget so that they can do this on a, on a phone screen, right? Uh, uh, so, you know, a couple of really simple examples. Uh, again, if you're not a computer scientist, I'll try uh, trying to explain what this stuff means. You know, write a function to reverse a string. String is just a word, um, you know, a series of, of characters. Write me a program that will take the characters and reorder them so it's back back to front versus front to back. Um, this is simple stuff. Like if you're a computer scientist, this will take you like, like no more than two minutes to, to actually write a function to do this. Uh, you know, write a function to compute the Fibonacci series. If you remember this, right, one, one, uh, three, etc. So, uh, you know, compute the nth Fibonacci. Um, another one is, you know, print out a multiplication table, you know, up, up to 12 by 12. So if you can do your ones, do your twos, do your threes. Um, again, like if you're writing this in code and you're, and you're a programmer, you, this will take literally no more than two minutes for anybody. It's almost like a laughing. These are like simple, simple trivial exercises. And you would be surprised at how many people cannot do this on a phone interview and do this in real time on a sheet or in 50 with some kind of time pressure and panic and you know it's a really again like they're probably really exceptional guys out there but you know this is a really good way of screening out people who probably shouldn't be interviewing in the first place uh, you know uh, if you are want to be a little bit more advanced right you know put in something that has loops or recursion uh, this is engineering concepts in terms of breaking problems down into subproblems and then solving recursively uh, if you pick something that has like formatted output so have them write out to the screen or write out to a file it's useful again just it's extra tests on top of these simple coding questions to find out you know if you do nothing more than this you'd actually probably learn a ton about the, the candidate uh, in, in an interview process um, Next one down, uh, so that's kind of the, the, the coding example. Next one down is, is do, a, do a test for, for object-oriented design. So why, why test for object-oriented design? So Java is an object-oriented design language. C++ is an object-oriented design language. It's super mainstream. It also makes you think a certain way. So the way object-oriented design works is like you, you're almost thinking in terms of objects that have bigger objects. I'm trying to figure out how to explain this to, from, to a non-technical audience. Uh, so you know, you are decomposing the problem into sub-problems or sub-structures and then assembling the structures. So it's a useful way to think, and if they can't think this way, even if they're not going to write any line of C++ or Java, etc., it's just a very useful way of thinking and, and breaking down problems, and it's a good way to find out if they're, actually, if they're actually able to solve this. Again, almost anybody who's gotten a computer science degree can do this stuff in their sleep. This is not hard stuff. Um, so, you know, one, one, one way of doing this is just having them define features of object-oriented languages. So, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff in object-oriented languages. Just ask them what, what, what they are uh, and have them explain it to you in 30 seconds. If they can't do that, something's wrong. Uh, you can also then have them ask, have them design or describe some uh, design stuff. So, you know, 
you know, if you were going to build a particular kind of problem, what cl classes are the components? What classes would you define? What are the methods as like the functions inside of the classes? You know, what are the constructors? Um, what data structures will you have to maintain? They're just like simple questions. So a couple of examples here. So, you know, define a deck of cards. Uh, so, you know, build a, not, not build a program, which is like explain to me like how you would use, how you would design a deck of cards structure so that a bunch, if you're building a bunch of, you know, game card applications that could all call this function and use it. So, you know, what would you need to do? And it's not that hard to understand as a business person, you know, you need a deck, you need a card, you need a hand, you need a board, you might need a rank, you might need a suit. Uh, you know, how would you design creating new decks? Right. What, what would happen from a programming perspective? What would happen when things get shuffled? You know, how would you deal cards? Um, you know, would you need a different instance of every card in a casino for Vegas, or could you use all the same cards? I mean, it's like it's like thinking questions, right? Uh, you know, another one is you know, model the animal kingdom as a class system. So imagine you're designing a zoo as a computer program. Like, how would you do this? And you're looking for stuff, right? You know, are they thinking about the right sets of things, right? You know, do they? Uh, you know, do they understand the problems posed by a tomato, right? Is the tomato, does it fall under the fruit category? Does it fall under the vegetable category? Nobody really knows the answer to that. I think technically it's a fruit. Uh, you know, what happens with a sponge? Like, are they going to break down the problem and start thinking about it and think about the edge cases? Because this is the stuff that you're looking for in a programmer, right? Which is, you know, can they actually figure out, like, what, what should be designed and all the things that are around it versus just actually doing the work? Um, so, a couple of examples right there. Um, Next one down is a, is a useful testing. You'd be surprised at how many people don't know how to do this stuff, and it's a very useful. It's a very common thing. It's just like being able to understand regular expressions. So, regu you know, you could write a bunch of code to solve a problem like this. So, in this particular case, you know, you have a bunch of phone numbers, and to remove all the phone numbers because the phone numbers weren't in service. And you could write a program to do this, or you could write that there's a utility in Unix that you could do. It's one line of code that would that would actually fix this. And, and testing for that actually, it turns out there's a really high statistical correlation between people who understand understand regular expressions and people are really gifted programmers. Uh, yeah. Pro good programmers are lazy, right? So there's no, you could like actually write this program from scratch and solve it or you could write one line of, you know, one line into Unix and actually just do and solve the problem and good programmers will always pick the one line because it's a hell of a lot less time. Uh, it's a useful screen. Uh, and then finally, uh, testing for data structures. So this is probably like engineering computer science 101. So, you know, in computer science classes, you learn about how different kinds of uh, structures work and what structures are, are, are useful for what programs under what kinds of conditions. And so, you know, there's an array. An array is just basically um, like... Uh, it. Uh, it's a bunch, a sequence of, of, of numbers or characters uh, lined up together in, in a fixed-sized uh, vehicle uh, that you typically use. So, like a string, which would be like a word, would be an array of characters, right? So, a string of a string that equals a word is an array that's character size four because it has four characters in a row. Uh, you know. There's vectors which are growable arrays, so you know an array is fixed size, and how do you make it grow? You know, linked lists, which are basically I, don't, I probably shouldn't have to go through all, all of this stuff because I don't know if you guys are all computer scientists, but useful to test for data structures. Data structures have a huge amount of of, uh, of ability to figure out if you're actually a good computer scientist versus just a, a hacker. So can you think through? how to optimize code, how to use the, the least memory in a particular program, how to design your structures in such a way that the code is scalable uh, over time and the program is scalable over time versus just making something that works. So, um, you know, in a couple of examples, uh, you know, 
what, like, what's a scenario when you would use a linked list versus a, versus a vector or an array, right? You know, and any good candidate will be able to explain to you, like, here are the examples, like, if you have to grow something out, uh, and, you know, you, and you need to sort in a particular way, you're going to use X versus Y, and you should be able to give you the conditions for what, what's good and what's bad, uh, you know, and you can ask slightly more complex questions, which is, like, what's the worst case? performance of a hash table, which is, you know, it's a particular way of storing uh, information on the computer, uh, and you want to, you always think about the worst case scenario, because that's, that's how you, that's how you, that's how you figure out how the, how fast the program's going to run. It's a very standard engineering interview question, actually, in person. Sorry, are we, are we a face-to-face -face interview here? No, phone screen. This phone, phone screen. Like, all of this, okay. all of this stuff you can answer in, like, in, okay. in, in 30 seconds. Like, and if someone can't answer one of these things in 30 seconds, either they're super, super rusty, uh, or they actually don't know the material, in which case you screen out. And then finally, like bits and bytes, which is, you know, how does a computer work? You know, so, you know, we have a bunch of memory, there are operations that bind the memory and or not XOR, uh, and you can ask a bunch of questions on, like, uh, on the actual computer architecture. Most people who are actually engineers understand the computers that, and understand the low-level functions of how a computer actually works, and again, you can ask a bunch of questions around that. Uh, so, you know, here's some examples, right, you know, write a function to count all the bits in an integer, um, you know, and just ask them to explain it to you without actually having to write the code. And again, you'd be surprised, like in half an hour, you can probably cover almost all of this, because each one of these questions probably takes no more than two to three minutes to solve. You know, it doesn't matter if they're rusty, it doesn't matter if they need hints, uh, it doesn't matter if they're not exceptionally great at answering the questions. What matters is that they're, they're, if they're unable to answer the questions, you want to weed out. Uh, so you're, again, you're designing for the bottom, because then you're going to do a face-to-face -face interview where you can do a lot more of this kind of stuff. Uh, so here's, so here's, here's a couple of like examples, which are probably easy, right? So like, you know, so you ask a guy, you know, what kinds of data structures do we have? The guy says, you know, gives you a bunch of examples, right? Arrays, vectors, linked lists, uh, and then you just say any others, and they say, you know, they go back, uh, you know, they, they, and then you ask them, like, you know, have they ever used, like, a binary tree or tree, and they're like, yeah, I forgot about those, right? You know, someone who's, like, a, an experienced engineer, even if they're, like, a computer science grad, like, will actually be able to iterate out this to a full and complete set, and if they can't do that, it's probably a big one, so. Uh, another one is, you know, what languages are you proficient with? You know, mostly done Java. Uh, any others, you know, you know, I did C a long time ago, but I'm pretty much mostly Java now. Like, you know, most people who actually write code can pick up languages really fast. It doesn't make that much of a difference. Um, um, so once you do the phone screen, you know, you have a candidate who can pass this stuff. You know, they're, they're obviously capable. Then you will typically do a, a full day of interviews. That's what's called an interview loop. Uh, you, know, you do about five interviews. Um, and you know, really, what you're trying to you're trying to design, you're trying to optimize for here is experience, uh, expertise, and then engagement. Is there a good cultural fit between you know the company and yourself? Uh, I I had something I asked Matt to print out. It was very long, so I have a, an actual guide as to what a full day like interview should look like, what the different examples are that you should be. So you know, typically what happens is there's one person who will do a brain teaser set of questions. So you know. A, like a common brain teaser that I, I like using is like, and, and anybody should be able to solve this, it's just a way of thinking, is like, suppose you're trapped in the middle of a coliseum, it's a circular coliseum, so it's a big circle basically, there's a lion outside, the lion runs four times faster than you do, you're stuck in the middle, uh, how do you get out? 
uh, and you know what you're looking for here, and you know, most of these problems you're trying to break down into sub-problems because you're trying to see how people think, right? Because it's one thing to solve the problem, but it's another, you need to design the question in such a way that you can actually make them, you, you can see the thought process that they're going through, and good, good problems break down into these kinds of sub-problems. I think I actually have that on my, on my next slide. So, you know, you want to be able to ask a problem where you can compose it into sub-problems. So the first thing here is you need someone to figure out that, you know, pi is really important because, you know, this is a circumference of a circle. And pi is 3.14, the line runs four times, so there's no way of escaping. You know, if you start off on one end and then try and run to the other end because you've only got the radius of the circle, you know, the line runs four times faster than you, so the line will be on the other side ready to eat you by the time you get out. The minute that light bulb switches off, it's interesting, right? So then you look for the, the next set of the next set of uh, techniques. So you know, how do you then design your way out? And the answer to this problem is actually it's not that hard. Is you run to the other end, you run in a circle, so the line then ends up directly on the other side of you, and now you have much less than the radius to run out. So basically, you know, if you're like you can draw it out. Uh, if you're here and here's the big circle, right? And you get over here, and the line is here and you run here, right, at some point you're much faster than the line because you're running less than pi. The line, you can run around, keep running around the circle up until the line is here, and you're here, and then you get out and you're, you're actually safe. Uh, and, that's, and if someone needs a hint on this, it's actually probably, it's probably fine. Like another really popular question that I like giving is like you have two pieces of string uh, and they burn in 30 seconds each. So if you light them, it takes 30 seconds before they go to dust. Uh, how would you measure, uh, sorry, they burn in 60 seconds. How would you measure 15 seconds? And so again, the thing that you're trying to figure out is you have two pieces of string, right? You have to figure out that you have, in order to measure halfway, you can't just cut them in the middle because they're uneven. So you have to light them on both ends. And when you light them on both ends, like, you know, the middle may actually be here, but it's 30 seconds of time that have elapsed. And if they need that hint, that's okay. Now, how do you apply that to get 15 seconds on the second piece of string, right? So what you need to do is, like, light the other one on one end up until this one burns out and is completely gone. Now you know you have 30 seconds of string, then you light the other end, and you get to 15 seconds. So you see how you, you're decomposing the problem into a series of sub-problems. You're trying to see if they can actually stitch together these kinds of problems. So, you know, day, you know, that's probably brain teaser one. They're horribly stressful. I hate doing brain teaser questions going through engineering interviews. I don't want particularly giving them because they're, they're, they're not that great. Uh, but they're really useful to figure out if someone's actually able to think. Uh, Another one that I give uh, for most of my phone screens for 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 my uh, I, have a, I have a company in, in India uh, for that one is you know I give you a, and any person should be able to solve it. I give it to my 14 year old cousin and she solves it. And she's not a computer scientist. It just forces me to think. You know I give you a series of numbers and they're all in sequence, but they're randomized. So some are positive, some are negative. There's say a sequence of like 15 of these random numbers, positive, negative. You know find me the way to get the biggest sum. Uh, you know, the, you know, the series of a sequence of numbers that leads to the biggest sum. So if they're all positive, you know, the biggest sum will be the entire sequence, right? Because everything adds, but since there are negative numbers in there, you know, find me the largest <coughs> sequence that will add up to the biggest value. Um, and there's an algorithm for being able to do this, and you want to be able to see if the person's actually able to think through the algorithm to be able to figure this out. But you might ask yourself, like, why the hell do questions like this actually matter if the person just needs to write an iOS app, right? The thing is, most engineering questions, most engineering problems that you face are open-ended questions that you don't know, you often don't know what the solution is, and there are things that you need to design, and you need to be able to test for the person's ability to be able to think about this stuff, because there are all these, like, edge cases, right? And if they can't solve a simple problem like this by decomposing it into smaller problems, uh, 
it's going to be very hard when you get a very unknown problem, like you know your server is scaling at the following, you know at the following rate, you, you're kind of maxed out. You now need to come up with a clever engineering solution to be able to handle the load. You know, if someone is just kind of broke by the book, they won't be able to actually experience. If they're put into a new situation, they won't actually be able to solve for that. And I'll tell you, 90% of the time, you're solving new stuff because as you're building a new company, that's what you're solving. So that's why you ask these kinds of questions. And then the bulk of the time, then. On, on the day-to-day -day interviews is in data structures questions, so computer science questions. You have someone write some piece of code, you go up to the, you go up to the whiteboard, they'll, they'll write it out, and then you'll say, you know, give me the computational efficiency of that code, so tell me how fast this code runs algorithmically, and then what you'll do is you'll, you'll give them a problem in such a way that they solve the problem, and there's a faster way of solving the problem, and you'll say, can you think of any fast, like, there'll be like a very easy, simple, like, clean way of doing it, and you'll say, like, okay, now try and optimize this for me, and bring the computational complexity down. Uh, you start, start, and it'll get them to think, and, and you may have to give them a hint, but you'll see how the person actually behaves under pressure, and it's, um, it's, 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 you know, you'd be surprised how many people don't do this. So, in the pack that you guys will end up with, uh, there's like 30 pages of these kinds of things, and you can go through them, uh, you know, most of them I think are more relevant if you actually have a technical background, but, but they're, it's easy enough to read. So if, if um, you're in a situation where you don't have that first tech co-founder, yeah. who's the guy who can basically help you understand whether these are good answers or bad answers, or that kind of thing, for, for the guys who are literally starting out, can you recommend maybe places where you can borrow someone who can give you an objective view to help you at least get your first technical senior guy on board so they're not just bullshitting you basically? Yeah, I mean, so this is, this, is the, this is a really hard problem, right? So, like, what do you do? It's a different problem than how do you hire really great exceptional people. It's like, how do you get your company off the ground if you're not technical? The simple answer is find someone technical. I don't think if you're building a technology company and you're missing the technology person, you're kind of you're kind of up a creek. I mean, to, to some degree, because you can't even hire like really great people. Uh, I'm generally really bearish on outsourcing because my de by definition, when you outsource stuff, you always get mediocrity. So think about it. You will never be the largest customer of whoever you're outsourcing from, right? You will always be the small crappy customer because you're the new company that may probably doesn't have that much work. So what are they going to do? They're going to give you the intern. Would you hire the intern? Probably not. So why would you like pay a bunch of money to basically get the intern to build your stuff? It's going to break at some point. And you know, there are exceptions if you find like a one-man shop or you know the company, you know, you can get around this, but generally speaking, the stuff will break. And if it doesn't break today, it will break six months from now when you have to do a complete rebuild. And those are really difficult. You're almost better off starting from scratch the right way and taking the next to three months finding the right person and getting into market and finding out everything breaks and then having to do a six month rebuild uh, while you actually have customers, etc. It's a huge setback for most companies that I've found. So, you know, find a guy, outsource is the next one. You know, the, the third one is, you know, do whatever you need to do to get your first product and to validate it and keep running a search for, for a technical person. But, you know, generally speaking, if you're, if you're building a very closed-ended problem or technology, is really like IT, like it doesn't matter, it's not a tech company, it's really just a service function to be able to build stuff. And there are very few examples of real tech companies that are like this. Like, you know, you could have argued back in the day, Amazon, like tech didn't really matter, it was an e-commerce company, you could have outsourced that. But like, end of the day, Amazon's done everything that it did because it was a tech company. And if it didn't have that experience, you wouldn't have like the recommendations, you wouldn't have the collaborative filtering, you know, you would, you would just be missing out on a lot of what made Amazon, you wouldn't have the infrastructure, 
right? You wouldn't be able to run the logistics correctly because most of that stuff is automated in Amazon as well. So, you know, so even in companies where IT is in a box, it's really not in the box. But if you do have something where it's clearly in a box, then you can then you can outsource and you can give it to someone else. But if you have something where it's core to the company, unfortunately, you have to go find a, a person who can actually do this. Uh, uh, and it's it's hard that like you would not have built Dropbox as simple as that product is without really good engineering talent and really good engineering founders. I mean, it's just the nature of the game. Uh, so like you're not going to build a financial services person without someone without finance experience. Uh, if you're an accountant, you're probably not going to go build Goldman. You have to go find people who have more finance. Uh, so so I have a pack for the actual data, but the whole concept of data is do a loop. Each person takes one functional area. Uh, and what you're really testing for is someone's doing brain teasers, someone is then doing data structures, someone is doing algorithms, and someone is doing probably a coding question. And then you're going to do the most important thing, which is just cultural fit. You know, is this a good guy? Is this someone that you want to work with? Or a good girl? Um, you know, uh, how do they get along? Do you have a good rapport? And the best way to do these engineering interviews is you do the loop. At the end of the loop, every person who's interviewed will upload into an email system or you know, an email thread with their description of and and, and, and a simple rep, like a, a one paragraph description of what they what they learned and what they tested for and where the weaknesses are and a higher no higher recommendation no maybes like a higher or no higher if you get a single no higher over the course of the day you reject if you get all hires the last interview the person is goes into sales mode and tries the best to close the person on the spot and get them to work for the company uh, after the interview. Um, you know, and so that's typically the way most, like, that's the way Microsoft, Google, Amazon, etc. Uh, all do interviews. Um, so, uh, what else? A um, bunch of resources. So, you know, where do you find? So a lot of these, like, problems and questions that you would give, there's, like, an online community now for, for this stuff. So there's a site called Career Cup that has lots of examples of these kinds of questions. So you don't even actually have to reinvent the wheel. The problem is a lot of people who are smart will actually go to these sources. But you'd be surprised at how many of these things are not super well known. There's another site called Geeks for Geeks. Um, there's a student at Berkeley uh, that runs something called W Forums. Uh, uh, who forums and he has a bunch of examples of, of questions, including like very live, pertinent, like people go through Facebook interviews, will upload the stuff, uh, and then there are a bunch of links, right, and that I have here uh, as to like, how people have gone through interviews. Um, there are also two books that are useful. So one is a, a book called Programmer Programming Interviews Exposed, it's written by a former a friend of mine, a former classmate Noah Kindler. Uh, it's useful. It's like thirty bucks. It's definitely worth buying and having on your shelf if, if you're doing engineering interviews. And then most of the questions, like if you're prepping for these kinds of interviews, there's a book called The Algorithm Design Manual that's actually really good. You won't be able to read it if you're not a computer scientist, but if you are, like it's a really good like primer on, on these kinds of questions. Um, a lot of the Google questions, will, they won't come out of the book, but the, the knowledge that you need is often in the book. Yeah, I was just wondering, in your experience, can, can startups um, who don't have access to as big a talent pool as Microsoft might, can they really structure an interview process to look for false negatives? Can they really afford to <coughs> as as ruthlessly as, as the interview process that you just described? Yeah. And if they can't, what's... Well, so, I mean, the to me, the question is, can they afford not to, right? So, I mean, if you think about the opposite of the problem, imagine if you are hiring duds in your company, and, you're, you're, and there's a very good reason for doing this, right? You have shit to do, deadlines, right? You're up, you know, you're up against the world as a startup, but if you hire subpar people, 
you will never get to where you're going, right? You, you, in general, you need to hire 10 times better than the incumbents to be able to do 100 times better than what they're going to be able to do on very limited budget. So if you look at all the early, you look at all the early engineering interviews at Google, then, sorry, at Facebook, they're all super young. They're all kids out of college. They're all like in their 20s, right? But they were exceptionally talented people. Like most of the people in the early, like the sub-50 Facebook engineering team probably didn't know squat about a lot of stuff because they were fresh out of school, but they were exceptionally smart and exceptionally gifted. Uh, and you'd be surprised at how much smart and gifted can, 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 can you know, substitute for just raw experience because they learn really fast if you can get the right kind of coaching around them. Um, so what's the, what's the trade-off? Um, take more time? You know, be clear up front that you need more money to, to run a longer interview process? I mean, what are you trading off? You're trading up, you're trading up deliverables, right? So I mean, this is the heart. So this is why like, good startup companies will tend to bake recruiting very early on in their process, right? Because hiring good people is extremely difficult it's very time consuming and it doesn't have, like if you have a deliverable a month from now and you're trying to hire for it, you're probably not going to make the deliverable, right? So what you want to be doing is almost, so if this doesn't work at the first 10 people. Like first 10 people, you're as scrappy as possible, you get the stuff, but when you get to like 25, 30 people and you assume that you're going to be one of these scaling startups, like it's in your best interest, at around 25, it's in your best interest to start formalizing a lot of this stuff and running this on autopilot, where you're almost doing this irrespective of the work. Like you're almost hiring, or sorry, you're interviewing with the expectation that work will come down the line. Because it will take three to six months to find people, and so when you find them, you want to be able to grab them, even if you don't have a definitive project for them just yet, you know that something's going to come along the line. And if you do this well, it's not like you're going to be inundated with candidates, because you're screening a lot. So you will end up with, you will end up with people who are capable of doing stuff and then planning out for the future. So just to be clear, this isn't something that you would do for your first ten hires. I would I would so the first ten are the first ten are hard, right? So I would run the same engineering process, but I would not turn it into a system where you're trying to hire ahead of what the work that you need to do. You almost then at that point your cash flow your cash flow makes a huge difference, right? So you're trying to you're trying to keep a team of like three, five, seven people really lean who can do these kinds of things. I would absolutely run engineering interviews. The truth is most of those guys are going to be first or second order contacts anyway. So, you know, you're, they're going to be heavily screened to begin with. You're probably not going to be hiring, you shouldn't be hiring duds at that point, right? You know, there should be probably people who are recommended to you. You probably should put them through an interview process. You'd be surprised at how much of this stuff, this stuff uncovers a lot of weaknesses from people. Uh, People who are good, fly, like I'm not good, like I'm not a great engineer, like I can do a mediocre job with most of this stuff and probably land the job in an engineering, but the guys who are good, like really good, fly through this stuff and the people who are not that good struggle. And so knowing, knowing that is a filter, like this is a really good way of testing for weaknesses. So again, it goes back to that false negative. So even for that early first 10 people, I'd put them through a process, but I wouldn't be running it as a system uh, because you're gonna, you're, you're cash constrained, you're project constrained, et cetera. That's, yeah, what other questions? Um, I was just thinking about, you go through this whole process here, and basically, the big question that they're going to want to know is, what's in it for me? Yeah. You know, as a startup, yeah. how do we know what to offer them that's going to, so you know, you, they might buy into the vision, <coughs> you know, but 
are they going to uh, go for the money that you're likely so to a few A few observations about engineers, having worked with a lot of them, yeah. right? So engineers tend not to be very driven by money. It's weird. Like, you would think, if, given what I just told you, that there's a 10x order of, product, like order of magnitude difference in productivity. The guy on, like, if this is a finance guy, Goldman, they'd be asking for 10 times the salary, right? Engineers tend not to, I mean, they get driven by money. But they're not 10x driven by them. Even if they're exceptional, you'll find that their bands are like maybe 20% higher than market, right? It's not, like, it's not like 10 times higher than market. So they're not really driven by money. Uh, they tend to be driven by the quality of problems that you're solving. Uh, so they may or may not buy into the vision of the company and the commercial vision of the company, but they will really care about the engineering vision of the company. So in other words, if you're early at Amazon, what kinds of problems are you going to be solving? They may not care about like building a book. Uh, building a book e-commerce company. They'll care about the engineering problems that you have to solve and how much engineering is respected in that organization. And then probably the highest correlation of engineers is like other good engineers around them because people like to work with people who you know, think the same way or as talented. Like there's nothing worse than working with subpar people if you're, if you're actually if you're an engineer. And so you will often very heavily screen for, you know, even if it's even if it's same salary job or a higher salary job somewhere where the people just aren't nearly as good, it's not going to be a fun environment. You will you, you tend to screen for for, for that. Not, you know, assuming the, the price is within the salary is within a certain band, right? Um, uh, so they're usually not as coin operated as sales guys are, but they are they are operated by it. That's what I call it, yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, my general rule of thumb for sales guys, it's not true anymore because most people don't need sales guys, at least at tech companies, is you find someone who, you know, has, an, has a really expensive wife or partner who burns a million dollars a year, and so the guy gets his bonus and will drain it, and so will have to work the next year to feed whatever addiction he has. They're very, very, very motivated then to make quota and actually deliver, and you'd be surprised at how, like, that's a... You can't legally do it in the U.S. because you're not allowed to ask these kinds of questions. But anything that indicates like how much of a spender the person is makes a huge difference in terms of their ability to actually do sales. Uh, it's 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 surprising. Uh, you want you, you never want you never want someone who saves for their four hundred one k or their their what, what's it called here the IRA. IRA? Uh, I say, I say. You don't want people who say for the ISA and like plan for tomorrow's sales guys. You want people who burn through all their money uh, and then have to rework it the next the next year. Uh, you can put them on a quota. Believe me, they will deliver. Like in uh, because they have to. Uh, they don't want to get divorced. Uh, um, but engineers aren't like that. So they they focus on quality of problems and quality of team. And, and how that how that culture respects and treats engineers. And one of the good one of the good signs is it, it it's not true in Europe, but one of the good signs in the U.S. is when you go through a process and Google this, like go Google Palantir or Facebook and Google, you'll find a lot of engineers talking about the inter, the interview process. And the interview process is a signal for the quality of problems and the quality of teams behind that company. Uh, and 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 kind of the, the stature, from an engineering perspective, the stature of the company. Like Palantir is very hard interviews and is highly respected in the valley among the engineering crowd because of quality of people. It's a signal to the market that you take engineering seriously. If you don't do an interview process like this, and this is not true in Europe because in Europe most people don't even understand this process. Uh, so so it, it can't be a signal. Uh, but you know, in, in the valley, like it is absolutely a signal. If you don't go through a process like this, sometimes you end up questioning whether that startup actually knows what the hell it's doing from an engineering perspective. It's, it's built in at this point into the culture. Sorry. Um, can you say a little bit more about how this 
screening process relates to when you go out eventually and, and look for more angel investment or more funding for your for your business, or would you have the the funding secured when you're going to get maybe like the key technical people for for a startup? So, like, can you show this interview process to an investor or? No, like it's more about kind of establishing your core team. Right. So if you have all of your people except for sort of the the CTO or whatever you want to call them. Right. Um, would you would you establish that core team with with the chief technical officer before you go for funding? Or would you be more likely to secure more funding if you it depends. I don't think any of this has a correlation to, okay. to funding. I think in the valley it might it might because if you're not running a process like this, you know it sends an again even to an investor it sends kind of a negative signal. Is yeah. you know how to recruit really high quality people and people do train for people do look for quality. But I don't think this has very much to do with funding at least here. Um, so you know you got to do what's practical in order to be able to hire these guys and to be able to find them over and above anything else. Um, and, you know, typically this is led by your CTO, right? Uh, who, who kind of knows how to, how to assemble a, a quality team. Uh, and the CTO is usually not like, usually in these early stage companies, the CTO is not even like a manager per se, right? They're kind of the technical co-founder architect kind of jack of all trades and over time most like founding technical people turn out not to be the VPs of engineering but you know get punted into the CTO role or an architect role or founding role uh, and then like the professionals who actually know how to manage software and release schedules etc kind of come in yeah. um, but you know different stages of different people <coughs> any other questions where would you yeah. Um, I was going to ask, like, if, if you decide to take the outsourcing route initially, or use contract as well, and then you then start hiring people to bring house, how do you manage the code base, like, or, or work done by different sources? Yeah, I mean, so so it's really so contractors are hugely different, I think, from outsourcers, right? Because contractors are, are, are people who are inside the company, like they're inside the company for 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 a while. They may not just be paid as full time employees, but they're they're physically there. If you actually do hire contractors, try and organize a scenario where you, they're physically in your office for two, three, four days a week, even if they're doing other projects. So like while they're there, they're effectively your people. Uh, um, you know, in terms of like source, like, when, so I, I don't know how many times I've seen this movie, especially here in London, where people like will outsource, uh, the code base will come through, the product will functionally work, it will do what your spec told it to do. There'll be a bunch of bumps along the way, but that's kind of natural. It'll be over budget, but that's also kind of natural. It comes back, uh, you inherit it now, the outsourcing firm goes on to the next project, because it's an agency, because that's what they're doing. So there's nobody really left to support the code base. You start hiring your own people. They start stepping through the code. They find that it's spaghetti, right? It barely works. Say it works to do what you told it to do. It's not really designed for any kind of scale or structure. You know, nobody probably went through an interview process like this, so the people there probably don't even know how to build stuff for, for structure. And then you have to do a complete and total, like you end up having to do a complete and total rebuild. And it takes you just as much time as it did the first time around, except now you're running a live system, so it's tough. And you, and it's it's very difficult. I mean, you can try and bake this stuff in from day one with the outsourcing firm, but you're you're basically handing over the keys to someone else. You're getting a finished product, and you know underneath the surface you have no idea what's actually there, and, and it's not your people who built it. Contracts are a little bit different because they're 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 kind of like your people. So uh, 
So, you know, they're, they're in the office, you can hold on to contractors while you still have employees. Like, it's very normal to have, like, you know, if you're, suppose you're a web startup and you have to do a bunch of iOS mobile stuff, like to hire a contractor for that who's physically in your office. Uh, and then over time, as and when mobile gets big enough for you, you hire your own mobile team and you can do a transition plan between the two, but, you know, and the contractor can transition out. But, you know, because that's a resource that you can control a little bit more effectively. Would you recommend taking over a practice strategy? Depends on what the I would recommend con so particularly for a startup I would recommend contractors for anything that's non-core. So you have to define what core is. So you know if you're building a web service and mobile is not core, you can hire contractors for mobile. But if mobile's core, like that's a silly thing to do. If you're building like an enterprise software company, like you know traditional old school enterprise software, and you need like a reporting engine, but the reporting engine will barely be used, right? And it's just a bunch of UI has nothing to do with the actual product outsource that thing, uh, or contract it out uh, to, to other people. There's no reason for you to spend money because uh, it's not valuable. But if it's core, if it's like the core engine or the core product, I think it would be silly to give that to someone else. Sorry, Imran? Uh, yeah. uh, just thinking about, uh, you've basically laid out how you would hire people who start off, who just come out of college or uni, um, so you're basically looking for a minimum level of skills. If you're trying to find people who are going to be much higher up your team leaders, yeah. then how do you check what their envelope is? You know, what, so, so what, what, what are the extremities of what they know? It's weird. So the, these are not these are not um, these are not like specific, you know, area function. These are general problem solving yeah. things. Yeah. You can make them infinitely harder, uh, and you'll find like the ones I gave you are kind of all base level, and they work really well for pretty much all hires. But if you're trying to say hire an architect, right, who's who's, who's supposed to be in charge of a lot of the stuff and scaling issues that you might actually have, you can crank up the level of difficulty of a lot of this stuff, and you can also put in a bunch of stuff that are parallels to the kinds of problems that they would be seeing, like, and, and that's how you that's how you would hire that person, um, and you would run basically the same exact process with harder questions or questions that are a little bit more pertinent. Uh, and then you would always, like remember I said, like these were all designed to test kind of the event, like these are designed to evaluate. Then there's the experience component as well, which is just one of the interviews on the loop, is like tell me about the problems that you've worked on before, what challenges you overcame, how would you solve this kind of thing, you know, if I had to, if we had to design, you can even take something that you're currently facing, if we had to design this, what are the trade-offs between this approach versus that approach, and get a sense for if their experience is actually maps to the kinds of problems that you're solving. But generally speaking, like, so, you know, this engineering process scales from, like, fresh out of school graduates to, like, folks with 20, 30 years of, of experience who, who know what they're doing. And then the question is finding the right role for them and for the ones who are more senior asking the sets of questions. Like, none of this stuff, by the way, asks anything about, like, team management. So, like, if you're hiring, like, an engineering manager, you probably have one or two of the engineering loops just on management, right? You know, how you build an organization, how you reward people, how you, you know, divide out tasks, what happens when there's conflict. Like, I remember I went through a product manager interview once at Apple, and they gave me, it was very, this is jobs had just come back, and so this is very jobs questions, like, in, so it was like, imagine you're in the room, you figured out the right feature, right, and, uh, 
and you go into your boss and your boss basically tosses the entire thing out, how would you how would you react to that? How would you convince them that what you're building was actually the right thing? It's basically like you know you're dealing with Steve Jobs and he's he's made <laughs> he's you know another another odd Apple like it was an again product management question was like you've designed something there are twelve people in the room um, six of them are for it six of them are against it what do you do? How do you get consensus? Uh, how do you how do you convince people that your approach is the right thing? Or in, in one case, it's like in one variant was like you you have an opinion, the other one you you're one of the people, but you're the engineer, you're the lead. How do you how do you get to consensus? What what do you end up doing? How do you what do you do with the team, etc. And you can ask these kinds of questions in the interview process to find out like how they deal with conflict and, and team management and stuff. So it's just one of the loops. Uh, that sounds a lot more subjective in terms of or objective uh, in terms of. Um, how how that approach might fit with your kind of ethos. So you might want someone who's uh, kind of more diplomatic versus. So so yeah. So this was this to this, which is much more. So remember, I gave you phone screen right. stuff, which is all. Like you're you're optimizing for for lack of talent, right? You're trying to you're trying to eliminate lack of talent. Uh, then most of the interview stuff that you're doing in terms of a loop is just testing how they think. And there's other stuff in the loop which is going to be on cultural fit, right? Which is how they respond in certain kinds of situations. You'll get a sense for the person and how they deal with stress and the difficult situation, but you won't get a sense for what makes them tick. And so one of your, your usually your opening interview is like a question on like what what makes a person tick, how they how they respond, um, you know, to to different kinds of situations, what motivates them, what keeps them going, and that's baked into the interview process. But you have to layer that on, you know. Overlaid onto the technology stuff. One more, I guess. Um, so we've kind of sort of covered the you know, getting people in, yeah. But maybe sort of um, getting people out. If I've got a senior technical guy that's developing a product for me, um, and he's handed his notice in, this is going somewhere else. Are there any kind of pointers that I should give? I mean, you know, normally it's like a month's notice or something like that. But then you know, you've got them spending the whole month where they're going to sit with someone else trying to just do a brain dump of what they've been working on with the kind of family jewels with the co-base or something yeah. and, and what that can take out of a business. I mean, is there any kind of pointers? I mean, so there's a bunch of legal stuff that you have to worry about when someone is leaving the company and your lawyers can advise you as to what to do on an exit interview and what they need to sign, etc. Generally speaking, I mean, it's not like, I, you know, it's very rare that engineers end up stealing code and going to, I mean, if, especially if you've put them through a decent interview process and you, you've, you've screened for all that I stuff. I think it was, it was more from the, the next people that are going to be taking yeah, so, so, you know, mental. We talked about interviews. I mean, there's another whole thing in just terms of how you build an engineering culture and how you build, like, release management and how you build documentation for code. And you'd be surprised. I mean, like, if you think this stuff people don't do well, like, the other stuff people also don't do well. And it makes a huge difference. Like, if, you're, if you document your code really well, and you should be able to design a scenario where if you remove any one person from the code base, the house does not fall down. Now, granted, that there are lots of functional expertises where the person's going to be incredibly difficult to replace, right? And there's a bunch of knowledge in their head. But you know, you should be able. You're building a company, not a project, right? So you're you're building. You should be building and designing this stuff so that if you remove any one person, you have to fire someone. You know, everything doesn't come crumbling down. But that's how you do the documentation, how you do releases, how knowledge gets shared, how you, you know, spec out your API, you know, all that kind of stuff makes a huge difference as to what happens when someone leaves. Because it's inevitable that one of your senior guys is 
is going to leave and we'll have a huge functional responsibility and we'll be like every company will face this right you know and how do you replace that person and what happens when that person leaves and in the u.s it's even more pronounced right because in the u.s you don't have gardening leave mm -hmm. so you can literally walk in the door and say see ya and leave that afternoon and you know the company has no recourse whatsoever. At least here you have like a month's notice or whatever the notice period is. They can work off and you can, they may not be as switched on or as fully engaged, but you can actually, you know, you're paying them so you know, they're still your employees. So you can get them to do stuff. Okay. I think that's it. So. All right. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. Sorry that I came in and almost killed everyone earlier. <laughs> no. um, we do have lunch in the next room, the Thomas Brothers.